From social service Nanashi, I'm Jing Yang. One year ago, we documented community initiatives and discussed structural challenges related to the COVID-19 pandemic in Singapore. One year later, we're inviting the same guests back to talk about their work, how they are feeling, and what they think we have learned or have yet to learn from the pandemic. Today, we're former nominated member of parliament, Anthea Ong. Our conversation centers on mental and psychological health in Singapore, as well as moving from awareness to acceptance to action. Anthea also shares the initiatives in which she's been involved at the new podcast series, Sheets of Love, set to launch on August 7th this year. Anthea, I'm, I'm going to start with a, a cliche, right? So in, in, I think you've done this in previous sessions as well, but I'm going to throw it back to you. In three words, how would you describe the past year for you personally since you were last on this podcast? But focus on the personal first. So personally, three words. So this is easy, actually, because I think I have said it a lot. So when you actually ask me three words, I think that actually fits into three words. I keep saying, what a ride. Well, actually, actually, I always say what a ride has been. But if you ask me to narrow it down, I would say what a ride. Uh-huh. And I do know that ride, right, which has the ups and downs. And, and so I'm, I really mean a ride. It's not a slide. <laughs> <laughs> and that's but personal, a right? As in, that was yeah. personal. So what a ride, personally. But yeah. for Singapore, yeah. collectively, how would you describe the past year, too, in, in three words for Singapore or the country? Mm. Yeah, this, this actually speaks um, very deeply to me. It won't be a statement. I would actually use these three words, which is a question, and that would be, are we listening? You know, especially in the last year, are we listening? Because so much have come out to the surface. So are we listening would be collectively my three words. <laughs> yeah, and that's cool because that links to, I mean, the last time you were here, we were a few weeks into 2020 circuit breaker, right? The discourse then was about designating psychological treatments as a non-essential service. And then you also spoke about the three A's of mental health in the country, right? So awareness, acceptance, and action. So since then, what do you think we have learned about mental or psychological health or what has the country or Singapore learned to do better throughout the ongoing pandemic? Hmm. You know, Junia, um, COVID has done in one year <laughs> what we have been trying to do for many, many years, right? Where as when it comes to mental health, especially in awareness and acceptance, right? Never has mental health been talked about this much in the media, right? At the workplace or, or even everyday conversations, you know, and I'm, I'm getting it even, I don't know about you, but you know, I'm getting it from friends and family and that, that comes up. I, I think this is all really positive. It's really helped to break the silence and the stigma that's always stopped people from seeking help. And that's that, that treatment gap I think we talked about. And without awareness and acceptance, that action of seeking help is not going to take place at the individual level or collectively. And, and, and indeed, I mean, this is proven to be the case where more people are coming forward to seek help, both as a result of the challenges of COVID. So, of course, COVID has exacerbated mental health problems and created even mental health challenges in those who were healthy before COVID, but, but I also think personally that because of the reduced stigmatization, because we're talking so much about it, it's also why more people are coming to seek help, right? Uh, I mean, I already know in my own circle, you know, people who have stepped forward after struggling, you know, with anxiety, panic attacks, even dis- eating disorders for many, many years and finally coming forward, you know, to, to seek help. So, so the increase 
is quite staggering. I, I read in a recent report that AMK FSC reported something like a almost 50% increase in people seeking help with their mental health services called MyCare, I think. And I, and, I, and I also know that, you know, we have had more calls to SOS, more calls to the likes of Singapore Association for Mental Health, SAMH, uh, and even the National Care Hotline, which was set up at the onset of Circuit Breaker. I think if I'm not wrong, we managed or received almost 25,000 calls as at October, right? So again, both things, right? It could be that more people are needing help and, and are experiencing mental health challenges, but I think the awareness definitely helped us. So I would, I would say that I'm perversely grateful to COVID that therefore interagency task force for mental health was also formed, right? And announced by the prime minister actually last year for World Mental Health Day. I really didn't think that would happen to be really honest with you, Junio, because I raised it actually in my first maiden budget speech, right? Back in 2019. And, and honestly, there was not even an acknowledgement to that, that suggestion or that question. <laughs> so, you know, to, to see that three years later uh, being translated into action in the form of interagency task force, exactly what I asked for a national coordinating body. That's why I'm saying like, I'm perversely grateful to COVID. Like, I know this is a terrible thing to say with all the suffering. And I, and I also think that I, I want to put it out there that, you know, we have also seen in the recent budget, the government announced three new priorities for mental health. And all three were in response to what were raised in last year's budget, which my team of volunteers and I came together after the public consultation that we did, right, for mental health. And I think that's really important. So the three just complete a national mental health strategy, which we said that it was long overdue, and that's really important. The need for a central trusted source of resources, because right now it's just so fragmented. And then a national mental health competency framework, right? A, a training framework. So yeah, really just just all, yeah, I think that, that part of it, I feel, yeah, COVID has really made a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, the which kind of, goes back to the question, the three words you chose, just are we listening, right? So where credit is due, it seems like the government has taken on feedback or recommendations or kind of like some of the insights that have been surfaced. At the same time, as you you kind of balance and then spoke to in a very nuanced manner, there is increased awareness, but at the same time, um, COVID itself has exacerbated or created stresses for folks, right? The chief of which would be the migrant brothers and migrant workers who have been in the dormitories for such a long time, right? So I guess on that note, um, that's what we have learned. You've, you detail what we've learned. On the other hand, in moving from, as you said, awareness to acceptance and hopefully to action, what do you think we've failed to learn about mental health? Or if I would frame it otherwise, what are some lessons from COVID that we've yet to learn that we should continue to kind of work on and uh, pay attention to moving ahead as the pandemic becomes endemic? Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, there are many, many things. Remember that earlier I said we have definitely moved along very well in awareness and acceptance, but I did not say action. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's still so much that we need to do where actions are concerned. So I'm glad that you're asking this question. First of all, I don't think we've addressed any of the issues in affordability 
yeah. of mental health care, right? Which of course also relates to accessibility as a larger aspect of it. We all know that it's still the disparity in Medicaid and Medicaid claim limits, right? Between physical and psychiatric treatments, right? We also know that mental health insurance has still not been picked up, right? By most employers, because we, we need the insurance sector to, to move, which is difficult because it, it's, it's working on the market mechanism. So this is again, where we need the state to come in, right? To intervene. If the state doesn't want to bear the cost of it, then we need to bring some sort of policy levers, you know, to get the private sector to move because you leave it on its own, it's not going to move, right? And it's constantly a phase off. So, and the waiting times have not changed clearly. In fact, you know, I think it's actually even gone out in public hospital and you know that that, that was a question I asked. The waiting times for a psychiatrist and psychologist in a public hospital or institution is still 27 to 28 days, right? So, uh, so we definitely still have a capacity issue, Tianyang. So that's one part of it that we have not looked at and addressed in terms of action. The other is we are not, and I really, this one really gets to me, right? We are not addressing suicide prevention decisively, right? And in fact, that's the one that we have not been listening to at all. And, and we still don't want to bravely acknowledge that this is an issue that has actually been exacerbated many times because of COVID. Uh, and, and actually, since the last time we spoke, right, I have to share that a 16-year-old neighbor, right, in just next block to mine, jumped to his death when school reopened after circuit breaker, followed by his single mother 50 days later from the same spot, right? There was also, as we all know, there was a spate of suicides amongst our migrant workers, you know, at the height of the confinement. And, and just two weeks ago, we lost a 23-year-old artist, Right, who just graduated from art school, and just before that, a sex three student, right? And you know, this really gets to me because we don't talk enough about it, and so only the folks like myself, I guess, because we are in the sector, we get win of it, right? And I know that we actually just in the last week we've had twenty three sites. So what I think doesn't help is that we are not so decisively. When I said we have to address it decisively, is that. You know, we are right now basing on our annual numbers, our suicide numbers, which has always been quite consistent. It's about 400 every year. So if you use that as a way of thinking about policies, then you think, no, it's not a big problem, right? But actually, it's not true. Because if you dig deeper, the numbers that are reported, the official numbers are those that have their cause of death indicated as suicide. But if you talk to survivors of suicides, they will tell you that they would try to resist not naming the cause of death for their loved ones as suicide. So it will be named as an unnatural cause or fall from height, right? And so, so in other words, our annual uh, suicide numbers, official numbers are not even representative of what's really going on. So I think we need to really, yeah, it's definitely, I'm hearing more and it's really, really disturbing for me, Jinyao. So that's something that we are really pushing ahead. And we, we must invest more in suicide prevention because suicides are complex. So that, that calls for intentional efforts, right? And that includes making sure institutions like schools and especially schools, right? In terms of looking at suicide management protocols and prevention protocols. But we also need to look into also another thing that's hardly talked about because everyone is sort of tipping a tiptoeing is the effect of psychiatric drugs actually and on our young and, and that 
that impact and relationship to suicides as well, right? So you talked earlier about migrant workers. I think we are definitely starting to do more. I mean, we, we have a whole project called Project Dawn from Ministry of Manpower. And there's a whole ACE team, right, that has actually been set up under, so it's called Access Care and Engagement, right? ACE team in MOM to engage with manpower, with our migrant community. But we're still not addressing the underlying structural and systemic reasons that are really, we all know, you know, are the major costs, lah, right, for our migrant workers and brothers and sisters, uh, mental health, you know, whether it's the movement restriction on our migrant brothers, right, since 7 April last year, their living conditions, both for our migrant brothers and sisters, uh, their debt and salary situations, right? All of this was not actually uh, moved, moved very far along, I will safely say. So, so we, and, and recently, I've just posted on my Facebook because I was so livid. And, and, and on top of all of that, you know, erecting six meter high yeah, walls. I saw that, yeah. Right? To keep them out of sight from the rest of Singapore is definitely not helping them with their mental health. You know, so I agree. So that's another 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 area. Vulnerable groups like especially the doctors and healthcare workers, LGBTQ, special needs, low income. In fact, with the doctors, a few groups of junior doctors are bravely stepping forward to share their mental health challenges. And, and as you can imagine, COVID, they are frontline workers, right? COVID obviously have had compared to the rest of us, I would dare say, you know, like massively affected them. And some of them are talking about working, you know, 36 hours a day. And, and, and it's, it's just something that, you know, it's not just the physical health and mental health is going to be an issue. So, so a few groups are coming forward. I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that we can listen to them. It's really challenging because this could be seen as a criticism of the public hospital system, but it's not. I think it's, it's, it's a great opportunity to use this COVID situation to understand that these things are being flagged up. So let's, let's do something about it. So I think that's the part about more downstream. Other things I think we could have done better and we must, what COVID has, has exposed for us is we need to go upstream and preventive more luck. Right. So, so I definitely would like to, you know, and, and that's why I'm really sort of uh, championing. Let's make sure we look at the social determinants of health approach for mental health. It's also something that WHO has come out for us to approach mental health. So that that's definitely do that. The Lancet report and together with WHO has linked mental health, the mental health agenda with sustainable development agenda. So let's Make sure we look at that as well. So this is all more upstream. I also want to see more of a change in the narrative of mental health. Let's, let's look at mental health as a continuum. You know, otherwise we keep all the resources downstream to the care intervention model. So, so then we can invest more in mental health literacy, psychoeducation and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, I want, that, I want to, I'm going to invite you to speak more to the upstream initiatives and so, tons of things they've been working on. I thought it was important for when I was reflecting on what you shared, right? I think in this rush to move into a post-pandemic or endemic kind of COVID-19 situation, sometimes it's characterized as like a switch, right? We turn it on and off and we can go back to what it used to be. But I think what 
listeners should be hearing from what you said is that in thinking about the plight of those who are vulnerable, migrant workers, I mean, one of the anecdotes that always come up in addition to the, 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 the fencing, right, is that they have Facebook posts and they're always um, glued to whatever the multi-ministerial task force says. And more often than not, there's no mention of what the roadmap is for them. And it's difficult because you can't see what the end goal or when, what the end game is. And if that's the persistent sense of purgatory that you are in, then I cannot imagine what they will do to your mental well-being, right? That's one. And then you talked about the students and the youth, right? They were least vulnerable medically to COVID-19. But psychologically, what is the effect? And then we've spoken about it of the circuit breakers and the measures when you've not spent time with your friends. You can't see, you can't um, attend commencement or graduation. You can't do things that are typically seen as important rites of passage. So what I'm hearing from you, I think is really important is to think that rather than rush to a post-pandemic, how do we manage a lot of these anxieties? And with that in mind, I want to ask you about the upstream methods, right? Because we can do all this downstream work, as you said, but how do we as you said, take a more public health, social determinant of health approach. And what are some of these initiatives that you've been working on since you graduated as a nominated member of parliament uh, uh, last year? Uh, I, I don't know that I graduated necessarily, but you know, you kind of had to stop short when, um, when parliament was dissolved and a GE was called, as we all know, that was a bit of a surprise for everyone. But yeah, I guess... No, I, I love how you sort of segue into this. And, and I think that actually speaks a lot to the work that I've been doing since I stepped down from parliament. Maybe maybe also important to say that I didn't champion for mental health in parliament because I was an MP. Was, I was already doing this right before I became an MP. Only because, and it was for the last 15 years, right? Because of my own brush with depression, right? From that colossal fall, right? <laughs> Which uh, was from a, like, you know, a series of like brokenness, you know, broken heart, broken business, broken marriage, and a broken bank account with $16. So I think that's the, that's the important context. So, so it doesn't mean that I would stop, you know, after stepping down. But I think what being in parliament gave me was a parliamentary platform that was very important to change, to try to change at the policy and systemic levels that I couldn't on the ground. And to your point, seeing that, you know, seeing that there's been some action and some traction to the downstream aspects of mental health that both the community, actually both the, the mental health sector, as well as the government have been doing a lot more of, right, in recent times, um, which is heartening. I've definitely been moving myself towards the upstream. So one of one of which, which I actually started five months before I became an MP, is the Work Well Leaders, right? So we used to call it Work Well Leaders Work Group, which is a community. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's really an informal group. It's like a ground up initiative, lah. But it's actually a, a, a informal group of CEOs and leaders of employing organizations, right? Uh, the idea there is to is to look at mental well being not just as an HR issue, because if it's an HR issue, it tends to be downstream, right? If it's an upstream issue where you look at it as a strategic or leadership priority, then it's a culture issue, right? You're changing culture. You're building a certain type of workplace culture, and that's upstream. So that culture is inclusive. It's, it's to build, to be men, mental health friendly. It's to, it's to really be a one that is a safe space 
right? So, so there is um, less, you know, less issue with people wanting to come forward to share, right? So that's been the work. So I've actually stepped out on that work to the point since I stepped down that we're now in the final stages of incorporating a CLG or what? Well, no golden goose for this CLG, unlike the other <laughs> very well-known CLG, but. But we, we have a group of, so, so, you know, we started, when I first started, we had about 20, 25 CEOs and C-suite leaders. Last year, because of COVID, then the community expanded to about 75. And right now we're over 120 CEOs and leaders. And these are very large employers, right? So the impact, I think together, we probably will be taking care of close to 250,000 employees. So if we talk about the upstream, that's really important. And my challenge to the community is to do a reframe from how we're trying to address the mental ills, right? Of what workplaces are causing, the stress and the anxiety. How do we reframe it to making workplaces a positive source of mental well-being? What do you need to change as leaders and as the workplaces, right? So that's what we're doing. And I, and I think you and I will all agree that every employee is a member of society. So if we can use the organized structures and the resources of these employers to support employees, then we are essentially doing the work of having this fit into the rest of society, right? Because so, so that's, that's the part that I think is really important. And within which we are obviously trying to bring mental health insurance to try to address affordability issue, you know, getting employers to, to cover that. We are extending to make sure that employers don't just look at you know, teaching them mental health first aid, but then look at them as whole people, employees who are caregivers, what kind of support can we give them in terms of skills? Uh, maybe bring in Caregivers Alliance, paid for it, right? And get the and young parents supporting. So, so that's one big piece of work. And I'm using the organized structures of workplaces because I mean I spent 30 years in the corporate sector. Last. So so a little bit of a little bit of uh, connections and influence there. So that's been what I've been doing. The other bit is actually mental health matters, right? So that's a volunteer run community which started in late 2019 when a group of us came together to try to do the first ever public consultation on mental health for Singapore as a preparation for my budget 2020 debates. And what we found was very clear that we could group the issues into the three levels of mental health care, affordability, accessibility, and quality of mental health care. So because of that work, and I guess we were very encouraged how that work has actually moved the government to respond with the new priorities and policy changes, right, as I mentioned earlier. So, so we have We've um, organized ourselves a bit better. And so this year we kicked off another public consultation called Are We Okay? poll. And we got, last year we got about 400 responses, uh, respondents. This year we got about 600, but only over a month. So this was a much shorter period than last year. So what came up for us, again, it's going upstream to listen to the ground and not based on what we see as statistics that are presented in, through a single source. So vulnerable groups that I mentioned earlier, migrant workers, doctors, healthcare workers, LGBTQ, uh, low income, especially, and, and, and people with disabilities. All the COVID-19 challenges were also being flagged and affordability and inclusive mental health care are still challenges. Lah. You know, people are still struggling with um, paying for the care and treatment. So I think 
the impact is definitely widespread and long tail on our economy and society. So, so what we have done is we have put together a 30 page report because the community has grown to include mental health researchers, not just mental health advocates. And so it's wonderful. So I'm going to share this first here, actually, and you can see that we, are actually, we just finished uh, the report. And what we have uh, come together as a um, overall recommendation at a policy level is that we should set up a national well-being and sustainable development office under PMO as an action-oriented commitment, right? To addressing this with a whole of government approach, much like the Smart Nation and Digital Government Office. So we're drawing parallel with that. So yeah, so that's again, a very upstream preventive work, but, but we wanna do this regularly. I think we need to have this national pulse check on our mental well-being regularly. And so that's what we're hoping to do at SG Mental Health Matters. Yeah, and, and in addition to, to work well, SG Mental Health Matters, I heard through the grapevine that you also have a new podcast series that's coming up that's based around your book, um, 50 Sheets of Love. And so, you know, as a final kind of um, thought, since this is also a podcast medium, I wanted to kind of ask a little bit about um, how you got started, who are some of the guests that folks can expect and when we can expect the first episode to launch. I believe it's in August, but tell us a bit more about the podcast and what we can expect. Yeah, 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 definitely. So yeah, part of that work is to finally give attention to my most neglected personal project. <laughs> so I, I've actually, and, and actually I did come to you to get uh, your advice on, on, on kicking off a podcast series, but it has been, yeah, it's taken a long time to birth it. So we are, we have birthed it, we finished recording all 11 out of the 12 episodes. Tomorrow I'll do my last episode. Hoping to launch this on the 7th of August, the National Day Weekend. The theme of that launch will be called uh, A Love Tribute to Singapore. This is what loving Singapore looks like. And the idea there is to call on love as we discuss uh, really thorny, hot button, pressing, difficult, controversial issues of our time, right? And why, what do I mean by calling on love is that, you know, all this are coming from a place of our love for um, Singapore, for the people and some of the guests. So that the, the issues of our time, just like, you know, the issues I've been involved with for the last how, how many years now would span from gender and identity through to mental health, youth suicide, to obviously LGBTQ, uh, migrant workers, uh, low-income communities, arts, right? But, but looking at it all differently, right? Not so much that, for example, when I have a discussion with Alfian Sayad, you know, where arts is being brought in, we're not talking about arts. We're talking about how do we measure success in our society, right? Uh, and so it's not really just talking about the issue straight on, but more importantly, it is all coming from the lived experiences of these changemakers who have been guests on, on this podcast series, right? So I share my own lived experience from the book, which is a starting point for the particular lesson that I learned from out of the 50 sheets, I picked one sheet. And then uh, inviting the guests to share their own personal experience. And I think, Jinya, I'm very called to this because I feel, I feel that COVID has, has uh, brought into the open so many of what you know, we have been dealing with as issues that affect us. But we, we also can run the risk of talking across and past each other. Right? So the idea here is with the podcast, I'm hoping that 
with us, actually, and these are very sort of prominent change makers representing and there are different issues that we're coming from sharing our own personal experiences, right? That it, they are lived experiences. So let's not dismiss anyone's pain or experiences or humanity just because this person tend to speak sometimes in a sort of a more broader sense. There is a speed of love and pain and live experience that comes with it, right? So that's the kind of idea. And I, and I didn't want to go with, you know, the production team's recommendation to do a video recording along with the podcast because I truly want us to listen. Like listen, listen, you know, so that we're not distracted like, by the visual stimulation, which I think is what's going on a lot in social media. So, <laughs> so that's, that's what the love podcast is all about. And it's got shades of love. I'm dropping the 50 um, because I may not get to 50 or I may do more than 50. So I'm, I'm just calling it shades of love podcast. Gotcha. And we'll be looking out for it on August 7th, Shades of Love. And it's always, Anthea, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, to hear from you and, and to hear about the many, many things that's often on your plate. So thank you so much for your time, man. And thank you. Thank you, Janelle. Always such an honor to be able to participate in your podcast series. Which and thank you so much for doing this. I think you're you're making history. <laughs> you know, look a little bit different for our future generations when they listen to some of this real voices from the ground, right? From Singaporeans and and the likes. Yeah. Yeah, in a very so small way. You. I hope. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm.